You are listening to the Holistic Travel Nurse Podcast. In this episode, it is an interview Dr. McCullough did with another doctor um, discussing treatment plans with the great COVID-19. It was censored, greatly censored. So this is why I think it needs to be shared on my platform. Um, Everything that's been censored, I try to put out there. I try to put out some truth, encouragement, and not try to keep it long, but try to give you some information that you're not hearing from anywhere else. Um, And then massive resources to taking care of your health naturally. I hope you enjoy this episode and share it with others. Thanks for listening. Dr. Kenneth Redcross, who is a practicing inter- internal medicine physician who focuses on holistic medicine. He's got a, a, a boutique practice he set up there, but he's really been focusing on his COVID-19. And he is in a relatively, uh, not unique, but uh, certainly strategic position with his knowledge and uh, is able to hit to penetrate certain communities. So we're really, really excited to connect with him today because there's so much potential we have for collaborating and taking this message out to the community. So welcome and thank you for joining us so much. We really appreciate your opportunity to join us today. Well, thank you, Dr. McCall, for having me here. It's beautiful to even have a platform like this to get it out there. So thanks for allowing me to be a part. Oh, no, no. Yeah, we're just delighted to have you. So why don't you uh, give us a little bit about your background before we go into some of the questions? Sure. Yeah. So I am a practicing internal medicine physician who practices concierge medicine. So my specialty is the patient-doctor bond and relationship. So that leads to house calls. That leads to making sure that the patient has access to me uh, 24-7. And that's the way I think it should be. Patients should feel like a doctor is a member of their family. And so that's what I do. Okay, good. So how have you been uh, responding to the, I guess, the once-in-a-lifetime craziness that we've been going through this last few months with this uh, pandemic response and the government, the pandemic, but the government's response to it, which is just extraordinarily from, I think, both of our positions. Now, some people find it plausible, but uh, you know, when, you, when you know the details, it's really extraordinary is being very kind and generous, I think. No, I, I think I think you're right there. You know, it's been quite challenging. You know, my career has spanned over two decades now, and obviously I've never seen anything like this. So a big part of my practice are house calls. So now I am literally making house calls to patients who have COVID-19 and quite honestly, especially early on, belonged in the hospital, but there was no room here in New York. So I was seeing death and despair. And so I try to turn all that around, but you're right. Our response um, has made it quite challenging to give high-quality care like you'd prefer. Yeah, so I didn't realize you're at the epicenter. You have a, your practices in New York City. I am. In fact, I was even more so in the epicenter because I was in New Rochelle, where the, the gentleman who was at the synagogue that I was going to visit a week later um, as far as patients who wanted to talk to me, where it really started. So I'm really, really and truly in the epicenter. So how many people have you personally treated with COVID-19 or at least oh. had it and it had to shift to the hospital? Oh, I, I'm assuming you're not taking care of them in the hospital. So it's a, you know, it's hospital medicine is really a whole new subspecialty now. It's it hospitalist. Is. And, you know, as a general, when I first started practicing in 1985, I mean, the family doctors did everything. But yeah. then I kind of gradually, even before hospitals became a big deal, I realized this is ridiculous. I mean, it really is a legitimate subspecialty. And, and it's just so 
inefficient to try to do both. So, you know, I think it's rightfully so. I'm sure, tell us the, the, your experience with the people you've had with COVID-19. So let me tell you. So I've gotten calls to talk to, to see people who um, are short of breath, who um, I check their oxygenation status and are only in the 80s and so forth. Look, that's someone that belongs in the hospital. But Dr. McCullough, I'm trying to convince them and the family to go to the hospital. But they're like, Doc, I'd rather <laughs> die here at home. I'd rather die here at home. Yeah, that was a wise patient, a wise patient. And so here I am, and I am putting on my my medical hat as far as on the western side of healing, and then I'm also putting on my hat on the eastern side of healing. I'm saying, okay, patient's not going to go to the emergency room or to the hospital, so how can I manage that? So that's what I mean and say there were some patients that belonged in the hospital, but I have to manage that in their home. And I think healing actually takes place at the home anyway. Yeah, well, <clears throat> although we're in, we're recording this interview before we're we're showing that there was a, a nurse, Erin Marie, who's actually from Tampa, Florida, who went up to the really the one of the most prominent, not prominent from the specter, respectable, but well-known hospitals in this epidemic, Elmer's Hospital, was in New York, and she, oh, absolutely. And she did an undercover story, yeah, on that, and it was just horrendous what they were getting away it was the care was so bad that there was only one patient who, who ever survived being put on a ventilator and that was because the patient himself extubated himself wow otherwise he would have died too wow. every See? single person was going on a ventilator was a death sentence yeah yeah and unfortunately you hear this sort of thing you're talking about elmhurst that's in queens and so when you go to a lot of these underserved areas um with people who are are minorities and so forth unfortunately it's a similar story whether you're here in elmhurst or whether you're in new orleans it's a sad story when you talk about kind of the difference in in healthcare management sometimes yes so have you had uh with your uh approaches to the people who weren't sick enough that required intervention in the hospital that we're able to turn them around with some of the strategies that we know now are pretty useful for helping this disease? You know, I, I was very fortunate and, and blessed in that I was able to do that by number one, being sure, making sure to have that close relationship with the patient and the family. That's the concierge pay per, percent of what I do, I should say. That's when you make sure that they have access and that everything is convenient. So I'm making house calls every day. They have my phone number throughout the night when I have to say, you know, I need to come back by. I don't understand why the oxygenation status is really decreasing. And I can get other studies to the home, such as x-rays and EKGs. And so I kind of have to mobilize everything to do my best to keep them at home and keep them safe. Yeah, sis, indeed. But if you had any specific cases you can recall where they, they actually were going downhill, you applied the interventions and they turned the corner? Well, you know, I had two instances in that case. I had one woman, once again, out here in the, in the Bronx area, um, and her family was once again concerned. And she was one of those patients who was saying, Doc, I am not going to go to the hospital no matter what. So therefore, I was able to, to kind of reach through some resources and get oxygen over. She had never been on oxygen, even though she had lung disease. So I was able to get uh, oxygen therapy service over to make sure that we were treating her that way. And I also saw that she was likely coming down with an infection, which you obviously see sometimes secondarily with um, COVID-19. So I was able to get an IV nurse over to at least start running antibiotics at that point as well. And, and once again, very fortunate. We're able to kind of turn the corner with her and able to keep her at home. So I love those sort of success stories that take place. It's just that 
it's challenging because we shouldn't have to to really do that here in the United States. So, you know, that's a story that makes me feel so good about about what we do. And we did it as a team, me and the family, not just me alone. Yes, indeed. Well, one of the strategies that we know seems to work, there's a few that are profoundly effective, uh, certainly insulin resistance and metabolic flexibility, the, yep. the ability to seamlessly transition between burning fat and carbohydrates for primary fuel. But that is a bit of a challenge. Many people are going to be resistant to it, and it's not something you do within a day or two. Right. On the other hand, the other most almost equally effective strategy is optimizing vitamin D levels. And mm-hmm. we know that uh, literally over 90% of adults in the United States have suboptimal levels. And if you go into the black community, it's even higher. In, yeah. in black children, it's crazy. Less than 1%. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Black yeah. children have optimal vitamin D levels. So, I mean, that, that it, it, many people, and I'm one of them, strongly believe that that is such a serious and easily reversible risk factor. So I'm wondering how you've been able to communicate that message and what type of effectiveness you've noted. Well, I'll tell you this. You know, it's interesting, Dr. McCullough. So when you think about uh, where vitamin D deficiency is so rampant in African-American community, there's a couple of kind of hurdles you want to jump in order to get through to our community or my Mm -hmm. community in this case. And number one is the skepticism. You know, Mm -hmm. African-Americans and Latinos, but African-Americans in particular for over years have had kind of an interesting relationship with, with healthcare. So the skepticism comes in, even back to the Tuskegee experiment in the 40s, Mm -hmm. where there were African-American men, about 400. And the purpose of this study, everyone, was to track the natural history of syphilis. It was supposed to be for six months, but it was drawn out for 40 years. And during that time, guess what? Penicillin was invented. Um, And these men weren't offered the opportunity to get treatment. So that's some of the skepticism that still is palpable now. The second thing is the messenger, Dr. Mercola, because it makes sense to to make sure in our community that the messenger can either look like us or either someone who understands our community and is in the trenches to understand our challenges. Now, there's only 5% of African-American physicians here in the United States, so it's not a large group of us. So it may not be easy to make sure we look alike, but if someone at least understands our challenges, that's the first part to make sure that vitamin D is a part of that discussion. Yeah, it could, because you're, it, it is just absolutely essential. If we're going to make a dent on this at a population level, we have to reach this community, and you have to affect the messenger. And you point out rightly so, the atrocious, reprehensible, and inexcusable behavior in the Tuskegee experiments, uh, which you know, it, it, in this case was focused on the black community, but... There are many other cases where they don't discriminate. I mean, these are just, just yeah, consistently reprehensible behavior that should never be employed on any human. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, but but that is a stain that does uh, limit your credibility because of that, that past history. So, uh, yeah, it's I, I I'm excited to work with you because this campaign has to reach those communities, and if it doesn't, it's going to fail because. You know, the, those are the most risk populations. And there's other variables, too, and maybe you can address some of those. I mean, cl- I don't know how important it is. I don't know that anyone knows because the studies haven't been done. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. certainly access to health care would be yeah. one. Um, the, there's clearly an income disparity, which 
would have effects on <clears throat> their and income and education disparity, yeah. which has effects on their ability to purchase healthy food or even access to healthy food. Because yeah. many of these low-income communities are essentially food deserts yeah. where you can't. I mean, if you were very, very wealthy, which you probably wouldn't be in that community, but if you were, you still unless you had stuff shipped in, you cannot buy it in your community. There no. is no healthy food available. And I, I live when I went to medical school. I was in a in a very large urban. Uh, ghetto essentially, and there yeah. w- was a food desert. You could not get. You'd have to take your car, drive out of the community, get food. Otherwise, you could not buy it in that community. Yeah, and you know, and that's an important thing you mentioned as far as just being in an underserved area. The other thing that when you're in those areas, guess what? Social distancing is a luxury. You know, that's <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is not going to be able to happen. Now, one of the other things, so what I've been able to do in my career, so I worked with, uh, I worked in El Junque in the rainforest before I went to medical school. I was also able to work with migrant Mexican farm workers out in California who worked in the strawberry fields as well as with the Mistecos who live in Oaxaca. I share all this to let everyone know that I've been with populations that necessarily can't afford to get a test or can't necessarily afford to get vitamin D. But when I have that discussion, even way back then, I would always say 5,000 is that magic number for me. That's why I cringe when I go over the counter and I see 1,000 and 2,000 because, Dr. McCullough, it's not enough. It's not enough to get to those optimal levels. Well, it it would be for someone like myself living in Florida who's aggressive about going outside. I mean, I haven't swallowed vitamin D for over 10, 15 years, and my vitamin D level is over 70. Wow. So, I mean, you can get it, but it's just hard. And right. certainly in New York, it's going to be harder. And then even if you lived in Florida and if you have a dark skin, deeply pigmented skin, right, you're going to have to spend a lot of time in the sun to get those vitamin D levels exactly. up, which is, the, which is the reason that melanin essentially is blocking the ultraviolet B radiation, which limits the body's ability to create vitamin D. But you're right that the dosing is key and yeah. the testing. There's a, you know, I, I created this document and I, I'm somewhat surprised. I mean, there's no question. Ideally, the testing is, a, is the way to go. But many people are opposed to that. Fortunately, you can use these doses that we know by his, historically are safe. And the yeah. toxicity is almost a non-issue. Right. You've got people. That, I mean, in the last 10 years, I don't think there's been any reported cases, not one of vitamin D toxicity. Yet in the last six months, we've had almost half a million people die from COVID-19. So is the risk balance ratio, you know, it's like there's virtually no risk of overdosing on vitamin D. You know, and that's the other thing that's important. So if I put on my Western medicine hat there, Dr. McCullough, when you look at the parameters, it'll say that the vitamin D level should be up to 30. But if I put on the better Eastern medicine hat, which is the more true hat, we get to that 40 to 60 range to your point. The other thing that's great by God's great design with our body is it's very difficult to become vitamin D deficient. One of those things that our body does is that it increases the melanocytes to actually, if you're getting a little too much, you get more melanocytes. So it makes it a little more difficult for sunlight to come in. So you're not necessarily producing as much vitamin D. So you're right. 
some of the well, well, uh, let me just add a point. I think you said it's difficult to be vitamin D deficient. I think you meant vitamin D toxic. Toxic. I'm sorry. At least least from the sun. That's true. But you theoretically, if you're taking 50,000 units a day and you start taking that every day for months, I think you're going to run into trouble. And And those are the ones. No one is recommending that. I agree. And those are the ones that had a problem. You're absolutely right, Dr. McCall. It was those who took way too much than was asked for. Then they should have been taken. Yeah, but sadly, the professional uh, nutritional recommendations for vitamin D in the United States. And I forget which authority or or, uh, professional advisory committee provided these recommendations uh, off the hand now. But but I do know it's 800 units. And that's the limit. They say you can go up up to 4,000, but they, they cautioned and warned against it. So, uh, and, and those, those data were based on preventing rickets. Right. It had nothing to do exactly. with vitamin D in the immune system. Exactly. Nothing, not, not a shred. Thank you for saying that. It was all about rickets. That was it for that little bit. Not all the other things that we know vitamin D does, for instance, for our immune system. So I am so glad you said that because that's true. Yeah, yeah, that is the key. So they just, you know, the, the, the professional community has slowed up and catch on at least you know, the leadership, I mean, thankfully, and I, and I feel uh, grateful to have been a, played a pretty big role in this in catalyzing conventional medicine's adoption of vitamin D as an important strategy to optimize people's health. Uh, so that most regular physicians, even non-naturally oriented physicians, recognize vitamin D and are a lot reluctant to pl- uh, uh, recommend or apply it. But many of the professional agencies are still... Just Still behind. They're, they're resistant. Yeah. Un- unlike the authorities, medical authorities and leadership in, in the UK and much of Europe who are more amenable and open to this intervention. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It always almost seems that way when we look at the natural side of healing, as I always say, a little bit closer to the earth. It tends to feel like, you know, in Europe, it kind of sweeps to us after it's been vetted a little more and so forth. So I, I agree with you there. It's nice. Um, the way that they, they think about things when it comes to, to vitamin D and what it means to our bodies and to our health. So uh, do you have most of your patients on vitamin D supplements now? And, and oh, what is yeah. your strategy with the testing? Yeah. So what I typically do is we make sure that we get a baseline. And I also talk a lot about making sure that we continue to check the levels. You know, it's not one of those things that we get the baseline and then I started and hey, all hands off. Because I even kind of ask them, how are you feeling? And I actually mm-hmm. get some different responses clinically when they're at this particular level. Some patients will even talk about a sense of well-being mm-hmm. that they get with this as well, which I love because that way, I, my whole goal, Dr. McCola, in my practice is not to have to use my prescription pad. And mm-hmm. so when I could use something like vitamin D to make that big a difference so that if their mood is better, maybe I don't have to reach for an antidepressant necessarily. Maybe there's some alternatives they can make a big difference in their lives that way and naturally. Yeah, there's no question. So what, what type of levels are you finding at your baseline initial evaluation? Well, you know, I'm usually seeing around the 20s, so I'm not finding many people that are at sufficient levels at all. I'm never really finding that, and especially in my elderly. So some of the other things I'll do is that I'll give some time at an assisted living facility that I'll go to. And I swear, it feels like all of them are low in vitamin D. And it makes sense, right? We've been shut in mm-hmm. for the past two, three months. They're older. They don't, they don't necessarily convert vitamin D as well um, as we do when we're a little bit younger. So when I'm looking at that population, I see it all the time. 
And so I'm pretty regimented by making sure every three to six months that I'm staying on top of it and kind of correlating that um, with them clinically as well and seeing how they feel. And what you, so what doses are you putting people on? So I'm starting. Well, actually, before you answer that question, sure. what is your compliance to the testing recommendations? I would imagine because you have a concierge practice, which is obviously more expensive than traditional practice, that they would have some disposable income so they could afford the testing. They do. And you're right. So it's a little bit easier for them to get the test. But once again, when I'm at that assisted living, it's not the same concierge. Oh, no, totally different. Yeah, 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 totally different. It's it's an affordable model. And I even have another little subset of a lot of Spanish workers in my area who, once again, almost free care in a sense to make sure that I'm still driving that message to kind of every population that I touch. And no matter what, I'm always talking about 5,000 because when I see 5,000 and I get lab testing after that, it tends to be in that range, that sweet spot of 40 to 60. That's the sweet spot where I feel like everything is better clinically. Yeah, so we work a lot with Grassroots Health, uh, and they've been doing this for like 13 years, and I think they've tested like 15,000 people now yeah. uh, with their research. And they're finding that actually, uh, if people have not been in vitamin D, that the starting dose probably should be even a little higher, somewhere about seven or 8,000 units. Interesting. Uh, Ideally, and they've developed this calculator too that you can put in your vitamin yeah. D level, the dose yeah. of vitamin D you've been taking, and your weight because uh, if you're overweight, of course, that makes a difference, right? Because uh, you need a higher dose. And then they then they, does this little calculator makes a projection of what your ideal dose should be. And that's so, a big deal. That's that's nice to have that tool on there. Yeah, it also engages the patient to be involved in their care directly. So I love that tool that they have on the site. Yeah. So it's but but five thousand will help most people. There's no yeah. question. But if you know to get to the forty, and and it's an, you mentioned forty is the ideal. I would agree with that. Uh, but most of the much of the science, maybe not most, but maybe maybe it's most of the science, they're using a thirty. Now, that's nanograms per ml, and if you're watching this from Canada or overseas, right, you have to multiply right. that number by 2.5. So 40 nanograms is 100 nanomoles per liter. Mm-hmm. So, But typically, the they're using 30, and, and it's shockingly, and a lot of the studies have been published with this, the, the, the results were still surprisingly and shockingly different wow. for those who had at least 30 nanograms compared to those who were lower with respect to the mortality rate from COVID-19. Yeah. It was just shocking. It was like almost a nine to 10 times greater risk of death. Yeah, yeah. And that's more, it's, it's going to be interesting over the next few years. Even over the beginning of my career now, we're getting more and more traction with vitamin D. We're learning more and more. And I can only imagine in the next five to 10 what we're going to be using vitamin D for in order to get well and heal. Yeah, well, we know a lot of that now. I've been, I've been studying it for the last two decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are many, many other applications, such as, you know, the two biggest causes of death, cancer and heart disease. But yep. also autoimmune diseases are really yeah. profound. And we've known that for well more than two decades. I mean, that's, there's been correlation epidemiological studies that show close associationship relationships with that. But uh, one of the challenges that many people have, and I'm wondering what your experiences has been, is that... Even taking 5,000 units a day, they still are unable to optimize their level. So uh, there's a lot of research that suggests this is because they may be magnesium deficient also and that the combination between magnesium and vitamin D is so important. So can you discuss your experience with that? You know, I, I, it's funny. You're, you're preaching to the converted there because I absolutely love magnesium for so many reasons. I'll tell you a quick story. I remember, so I trained here in Columbia Presbyterian in New York many moons ago. 
And I remember as a resident that I had an intern who was trying to replete a patient's potassium. And no matter what, it just remained low. So then I asked the intern, did you also supplement with magnesium at the same time? And so when the intern did that, magically the potassium came back up. And that was because magnesium is a vital cofactor. So even back then, we understood how important magnesium was. And it's even more important for vitamin D to get to its active state, right? Especially in the liver and to the kidneys as well. So magnesium is a big important thing. So that's when I tell patients that every vitamin D is not created equal. I like to make sure that it has a cofactor like magnesium in there, which is necessary for energy and so much more as it's in almost every cell that we have. Yeah, so it's like it's important for at least four to 500 different biochemical reactions in the body. Yeah. So are, are you pretty much putting most of your patients on the magnesium too? You know, I am. And especially when they're taking their vitamin D, sometimes you're lucky enough to get formulations of, of magnesium, or I should say vitamin D rather, that has enough magnesium in it. Um, my magnesium of preference, I'd be interested to hear yours, is magnesium bisglycinate. Um, I like it because it's got great bioavailability. Um, it tends to be easy for patients to take. I don't get too many calls about GI upset or anything. And so it tends to work for them. And so that's the magnesium that I'd like to start with. And what is the name? Bis? B-I-S? Bisglycinate. Magnesium bisglycinate. I'm not familiar with that. I'm familiar with magnesium glycinate, uh, which is as a powder, has very low solubility, so it's difficult to put in water, stir it up, and, dis- and drink it because it floats to the bottom. It doesn't just yeah. mix well. But glycine is a really important amino acid, mm-hmm. and I take mm-hmm. glycine. Actually, I take trimethylglycine, so it has really three methyl groups on it. It's called betaine, okay. and uh, it's, there, it's a methyl donor too, but it's also a, a form of glycine, which is, I believe, in a, one of the amino acids for glutathione. Yeah. So... Uh, I, I'm in, been in love with magnesium for a long time, and I, I think a, uh, a balanced multi-ionic uh, version is important. So I, I, I think yeah. I use four different forms personally. Magnesium three and eight is is one that it's okay past the blood-brain barrier. It's a little pricey, but it's yeah. So that's one. a new one for me. So that's good to hear that one because yeah. when I use the other, so it's good to kind of hear this. But you know, yeah. like we said, I love that magnesium is a part of this. Yeah, and then I use magnesium malate, which does dissolve very well in water. Uh, and malate, of course, is an intermediate in the Krebs cycle, so mm-hmm. probably contributes to some benefits to ATP production. Right. Uh, and then uh, magnesium citrate I like a lot. dissolves really well and actually tastes pretty good uh, because they have that little citric acid taste, so there's no adverse response to that. Nice. And my favorite form of magnesium is one is ionic magnesium. So how okay. do you get ionic magnesium? Well, you take metallic magnesium, okay, which is like a, you probably saw it in chemistry when you're taking chemistry. It's like a, like a, a band of looks like a silver th- a thread but ribbon, and okay. you put it in water and it just like can, can ignite or explode. But you but if it's granulated in the right way in a tablet, it, it can combine with water. To okay. form magnesium hydroxide, and no water, ionic magnesium and water is what it forms. I'm sorry, that's what it forms. Okay. And this, the see, the problem with magnesium, as you reference, is that typically it, 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 it's, it's a problem and it's a benefit. It's very difficult to overdose from magnesium because it, if you take too much, it has a laxative effect, and you'll just yeah. poop it out. That's right. So that's you right. really have a. Because you, if you get too much magnesium, you can kill yourself. I mean, if you inject it IV, you certainly could do that. But it's difficult to do it orally because of that self-protective. Yeah. So 
that, as you mentioned, with the bisglycinate, the people don't seem to have a problem, but that is an issue. So you have to be careful to take it with meals and don't take all, you know, divide it in the doses throughout the day, but otherwise you will wind up with loose stools. Yeah. And it, you don't want loose stools because no. that's going to affect your microbiome. So you want to titrate the dose to as high as you can go without getting loose stools is, is what I find. And I, I'm always at the threshold, you know, like some days I'll have a loose stool and I said, ah, too much magnesium yesterday, so. Right, right. And to your point with the microbiome, so when I did have patients who were on other formulations of magnesium that, like you said, caused that GI side effect, I'm able to get a good reason for a probiotic at that point. And I can, we could talk all day about the importance of the microbiome and all that for our immune system as well, but it allows me to implement that as well. Yeah, so are you using vitamin K2 also, or is this yeah. sort of like... I mean, it's, I think it's important. I think they yeah. should be done both together, but you know, a lot of people don't want to lay the load on the supplements. Okay, after all, then take vitamin K2, and then zinc, right. and then quercetin, you know, it's like, keep on adding things, doc. I mean, so, you know, our strategy is just, if you can only take one, it's vitamin D. Yeah. But, you know, the next one is magnesium, and then you're gonna like, you're really get that. But I think the third one would be K2. It